Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. from a possible future, trying to understand the present is one of those things that is inherently cyclically comic narrative. It's always been the pleasure of comic books to play with their own timelines and to manipulate facts as they see fit. Now, this is not the first time that the Marvel Universe has tried to string together everything around the idea of Franklin Richards and Galactus, but this time definitely seems to have a few more titles working along with it, whether it's the tie-ins to Avengers by Jason Aaron and the final host, or it's the calls to the future of the Marvel Universe and the upcoming Empire event. The history of the Marvel Universe by Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez is set to... Mm, I don't like that. Is definitely something <laughs> we're talking about. That makes this We Are Krakoa. I'm Nico. I'm Dylan. I'm Kyle. I'm Regina. And I'm Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience, hopefully like Galactus at the end of this, because things are not looking too good for our uh, gigantic buddy over here. No, it's a bad day for big old Galan of Ta. You know, I, I think it's funny because we tried to talk about this book and like I set up the whole that it's kind of like a looking at the future from the past. But at its heart, one of the things that's really interesting about the history of the Marvel Universe is that it is an origin story, but it's one of those neat, I'm going back and establishing an origin well after the fact sort of origin stories. Now, I kind of love those. I kind of shouldn't, but I kind of do. Sometimes they turn out really cool and you get Elektra popping up in Daredevil's narrative. Sometimes they turn out a little bit weirder and it's Excalibur and it's that Phoenix was a person and Merlin was their friend and then there was also Necron, the anti-Phoenix and you're just sort of like, wait, what? And this doesn't acknowledge that. No, this skips right over that because thank God. So I like to talk about about the way that the Marvel Universe adjusts its continuity as it needs to, to kind of keep things making sense. For me, I think the most exciting re-origining of anything ever is probably the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. I just, you know, that whole cable is their little kid. I grew up at just the right age where I'm like, oh, okay, I accept that. But looking back, I feel like if I had been a fan at the time, I would have been like, no, fuck you and fuck that little baby and fuck that stupid old man. They are not all the same person <laughs> no no rob liefeld you and your levi's ad can go suck a dick <laughs> now he wouldn't I know do that, that though, rob because liefeld he doesn't actually, like gay people well, and you know what? You know, he didn't really love the idea of Cable being baby Nate like that or baby Christopher or baby whatever, the Gerber baby. I don't give a shit, but I do accept it and I kind of even like it. You know, when I think about X-Men, the series by Jeff Loeb set during Age of Apocalypse, everybody's like, oh, it's Cable. Oh, it's Cable. Well, yeah, I mean, it's Cable, but it's kind of like Cable by way of a continuation of adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix more than it's anything. So, you know, I just waxed a little bit poetic about some 
stuff I love. I want to know, guys, what are some of your favorite origins or revised origins that came out later? One of my favorite top 10 all-time comic books is X-Men Unlimited number four. I've talked about it before, where Mystique is beating a man to death with a lamp. <laughs> but the it addressed the, the origins of Kirk. And they did go back and kind of revise it and said, no, that's not really how it happened. But just that singular issue, to me, was incredible. The, the story and the narrative that was told from Mystique's perspective and the fallout from it lingered for quite a while and still lingers to an extent, even though it's been revised now. But nobody's ever going to call Mystique Mother of the Year because she threw poor baby Kurt over a waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go But just the way that she expressed herself. You know, at first she was seen very proud of it, but then <laughs> when faced with her actual son, she was like, no, that's not really how I felt about it. And I don't know if I believe her, which I don't I don't know which story I believe from her. Was she proud of it that she survived such a terrible thing? Or was she secretly slightly ashamed because she did throw her infant son over a cliff? The whole comic book itself, the art was beautiful, the story was was gripping. It was a masterpiece, in my opinion. I don't know if it's because I've been watching a lot of She-Ra Princess of Power on Netflix, but one of my favorite characters is Magic Ileana, and I keep referring to her as the reverse magical girl, where she was given these magical powers, not because she was meant to be doing good in the world by, like, some good celestial being and, like, ah, like, to save the world and everything. No, she was tortured by a demon who wanted to turn her into the new queen of Belasco's place. Uh, oh, Limbo. I want you guys to know, you heard it here first. Magic is the opposite of ah. <laughs> yeah, Nico, play that in reverse. That's what she is. <laughs> I'm gonna kill all your families. I, 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 did everybody hear it in reverse? Hear what? I don't know what you're talking about. Q Pose Haunted, Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. I know. <laughs> but it's something about the way that she was taught how to do magic and how she became so powerful because let's not make any mistakes Ileana's mutant ability is kind of it's really great and it is powerful but it's kind of like meh when it comes to like the awesomeness and like the flashiness that everybody else has but like she could do so much more and why she's so badass doesn't even have to do with because she's a mutant and part of me just really I love sorcerers I love magic and seeing someone overcome so many hardships I mean she literally saw her brother and her brother's friends murdered and tortured in multiple timelines so uh, how can you not stand the origin story that i'm going with is of the most perfect mutant ever it's monet monet's origin story is very confusing because monet was introduced in comics with a new era of mutants and then it turns out like four or five years later this character that we know that was Monet was actually her two little twin sisters who had used magic to merge into a version of their older sister who had been locked up in the body of another character named Penance. The original writer for Generation X, Scott Lobdell, his original thoughts were Monet was never going to be a, an actual person herself, that she was always just going to be the two twins. But then as the years went on, there was a new writer in Generation X, and he didn't really care for that story. So he made this new, really crazy one. And I think he kind of had to, because there was hints here or there that Monet before was 
not really all there. And so he had to explain it. So he still took Scott's idea, but twisted it and made it kind of really frustrating for a lot of people. But I love it because it's sci-fi and it's comics and it's fun. You're being really kind to Larry Hama for the sort of sort of strange way he knitted together both Chris Bacalo and Jay Farber's work on the character. And I think even Chris Robinson, no, uh, Chris Robinson and Chris Bacalo's work on the character. Because yeah, you know, it's one of the, it's like the apocalypse the 12 storyline there were so many dangling threads for so many years the best you could hope to do was sort of glue it all together and pray <laughs> i think another reason that i like it is just because it's added some complexity to monet and her ptsd that she struggled with in x factor so I'm going to take a step away from the mutants, and I'm actually going to surprisingly look at an Inhuman, which generally I'm not a fan of, but in this case, I am a really big fan of Kamala Khan. I just loved the way that she was built into the brand new Ms. Marvel, and we just got to see her growing in her own powers while also so learning skills from other superheroes. And I'm going to be real. I super hardcore ship her with Robbie Reyes. I don't even care. And I mean, you know what they say about girls with real big hands, right? <laughs> and nobody's got a bigger <laughs> hand than Kamala Khan. Oh my God. And, you know, it's really interesting that we should be bringing up these characters who had transformative origin stories, because when you think about the Marvel Universe and sort of like the formation of the Marvel Universe in a popularized way, for most people, it's Captain America, and they're always kind of like, oh, that was in the 20s, right? It was like that Citizen Kane in World War II. They were all in the 20s, right? And, you know, then you think of probably Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, and I'm gonna be pretty honest if you have been on 80s Mutant Mania with me, or more appropriately 70s X-Men Explosion, you know that I stan the Stan Lee Jack Kirby run of the Fantastic Four pretty hard. I'm pretty hard-pressed to come at it. I do know that it is deeply antiquated and some of it has aged really poorly, but that's why I love the presentation of it here. This magical page of fantastic Fordham with the reflection of a mole monster. And you've got like a, you got a cabbie being like, Hey, I'm trying to make a living with fans here. And you know, it's it's particularly the I mean I know my Ben Grimm impression is but like this particular version of Ben on the opening page is very and like I love that about it because 60s Ben Grimm is like the melting pudding version of the Charlie Brown and Snoopy snow cone maker that is Iceman from the 60s. So like, I really do love this portrayal of Thing. Also, I love that there is that amazing depth contrast on the Thing's arm through Sue. I think the perspective created by her invisibility. There's, I, I could unpack this page for an entire episode, really. I just think this is the mastery of bringing together subject, writing, and art. I Really, three thumbs way up, six out of five stars. There's a lot of art in here that I absolutely love. 
Can I just have a quick aside? I kind of find it funny that the world is perfectly okay with Fantastic Four, who were mutated by cosmic rays, but they absolutely hate mutants. That has always bothered me. The Fantastic Four represent the potentiality of the space race and the advancement of man's ability. They, in an effort to scientifically explore, were transformed and then were able to make the best out of that hardship. Mutants, however, represent the underlying potentiality in any of us to be different than we believe. Mutants represent the enemy within, but the Fantastic Four represent sort of like... So, okay, post-its were invented when a guy at 3M came up with a weak adhesive and needed to provide proof to his job that he got anything done. And they were like, oh, this only sticks for, like, as long as you push it. Huh. And thus post-its were born. I think the Fantastic Four are post-its and the X-Men are gay impure thoughts. (laughs) Okay. 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 Um... Wow. And really, comics are imitating real life, and everyone, not everyone, but you know, life is hard, and life hates people for being born the way that they are, if it's different than what they are. So, all the other heroes in Marvel Comics basically made themselves into the heroes, and the mutants didn't. So, it's just imitating life where racism and homophobia exist. What an upper good time! <laughs> And I think, speaking of upper good times, on the second page, we get a little bit more of the Fantastic Four story, and on the third page, we get even more. And, like, I kind of love the piecemeal way this comes together for the Fantastic Four. You know, there's a bunch of other really cool heroes I can't wait to touch on on this page, but I feel like, because the Fantastic Four in so many ways dominated the early 60s at Marvel, their domination of this three-page spread, despite the fact that there were other characters there, made for a really important change. Regina, I was honestly relieved to see that there were women on two consecutive splash pages and no boobies. I mean, she's tied up one time, Jesus Christ, and there is an unnecessary amount of psychological focus on her crotch in the other. I actually now I have a problem with these two pages. But other than that, what did you think, Regina? I liked it. I think in the first page, I loved her being in front of the guys, even though she's kind of fading into them, which is ironically how women are often treated. They are treated as a figurehead and then who they are, their essence fades into the male perspective. I don't think it was that deep when they made this page, but that's where my mind went when I saw it. I liked it. The scene where she's tied up cracked me up because I was like, well, there you have it. We've got bondage again. <laughs> And if you zoom in, if you're reading it digital, her face is seriously kind of like, Wade, Wade, are you really doing this right now? Mark, we've had a great run. Mark, why this? Why rope? Why now? It also kind of looks like she's squinting and looking at the whole spot, but... (laughs) Why does Dr. Doom look like Friar Tuck? What is with that outfit? I also want to comment on Namor being Dokken. Like, I actually do know what they're referring to. There is this particular panel where there's this, like, sort of vagranty guy and they burn off half of his beard and it's Namor under there. And so, like, I get what they're going for. They're hearkening to a very specific image. But instead, it just looks like Dokken getting interested in fireplay and a Fu Manchu. So I don't know that this quite accomplished what it wanted. However, there was something magical about 
about the storytelling ability of Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez to create a visual identity for a story. If you follow this two-page spread, there's an explosion that kicks off what they're talking about, which leads into the horror of man losing himself to becoming a monster. There really is sequential storytelling to the positioning of the Hulk figures and... I'm not going to lie, I had to read the page twice before I noticed the Ant-Man at the bottom of the page. It's actually an interesting contrast and kind of a fun metaphor. Ant-Man always did kind of get eclipsed by the bigger heroes, and here, he's literally getting fizz-fuckingly eclipsed. Jonah, when you came into the Marvel Universe, I don't think you were too familiar with Ant-Man, and now, you know, ageless sexy Paul Rudd time machine man, and the incredibleness that is the Wasp, and everybody's excited about Ant-Man, everybody love Ant-Man. But how did you feel about this depiction of everything before Spider-Man presenting himself to us on the next page? I was actually pretty fascinated with the way that this comic almost breaks the fourth wall in and of itself, in that there's this full splash page has so much, like, bleeding into one another that, like, a lot of the effects kind of really work well for what they're going into. Like, if you're looking at the part where Victor Von Doom is putting his mask on and that smoke, it's kind of bleeding into Hulk transforming, which is pretty cool to me. And I do like the idea that Sue is kind of staring at Hulk's gigantic butt. Because who wouldn't be? <laughs> I now need a drag queen from Latveria named Victor Von Duet. And she's also a Nike spokesperson. The thing is, taking the traditionally sexy ripped clothes part in that panel. I feel like for the point I made about the kind of like focusing on Sue's crotch kind of idea, there is a bunch of man candy sort of like one after another. It's like, look at that Hulk ass. Sexy flash dance thing, Spider Man trying to show you his whole world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after that, it maybe loses me a little bit because it kind of looks like Tony Stark is trying to shoot up with a screwdriver. <laughs> I get it. I, I don't want to say it. what Thor looks like. I'm just saying. Yeah, Thor looks like he's in ecstasy at this point. <laughs> uh, you know, he looks really, really happy. Very happy. He's really wet. <laughs> wet boys. <laughs> Oh, I want to talk oh. about uh, Spidey in a position where I want to see him in more, because who doesn't want Spidey's <laughs> legs spread like that? Yeah, that is Spidey getting dazzled. That is pretty phenomenal. <laughs> Spider-Man, who is probably Marvel's biggest character, one of the most iconic and most recognizable characters, who, if Kitty Pride is the it girl of the X-Men throughout the late 70s and 80s, Spider-Man has been the it boy for Marvel itself since the 60s, and it might be shocking to someone that Spider-Man wasn't introduced at all and is not seen in the very first issue of this. Yeah, you know, that's part of the danger of doing a historical biography of the Marvel Universe. You're not telling it in the order it came out. You're telling it in the order it happened. And it's not just Spider-Man. It's the X-Men. Sure, Wolverine, Mystique, and Destiny made little cameos earlier on. But so did the Parker family. They appeared by virtue of dying in the second issue. It takes a really long time to get to the Marvel Universe we recognize. After that phenomenal little bit of Tony Stark just sweetly holding Yin Sen like his baby doll 
we get kind of like a quick succession of 1964. So I talked about it last issue, but here is what I'm assuming was meant to be an art uh, inconsistency in the first issue. But here it says Donald finds his staff, which is later to be Mjolnir, which is Thor's hammer. But like he was shown with his walking cane when he got turned into Donald. So Marvel, what is the truth? I'm assuming that he might have dropped it. The truth, and the truth of it is, it's been both his cane that he tapped in the right spot and a mystical cane placed in the right spot at different times. Not necessarily that Wade was looking to acknowledge the inconsistency, but I think because there's so much visual iconography that both has him have it and also find it, I think they were just trying to play both sides of that visual. I get it. It still makes for a cool thing. It was just something I, I noticed. I was like, huh, this doesn't seem right. Yeah, and no matter what, he didn't, like, casually walk in with his jacket slung over his arm like a waiter. <laughs> you- like, what the fuck? He just fell down a hole. I mean, like, he got to the end of a runway, and, like, he did a reveal, <laughs> took the jacket off, and now he has to hold it? Yeah, that's, he, like, <laughs> fell in a hole! Like... So once Thor joins with the Avengers, we get to the X-Men and by God, these two pages of X-Men. Yes, it is lovingly and gorgeously bookended by the Avengers, but oh my God, this X-Men two page spread. I could have made you guys read the whole book for this alone. It was, uh, I think it looks a little bit like Jean Grey has a headache. Just a little bit. (laughs) Also, I maybe never realized how stupid Bobby's boots look. Yeah. Like, they look really stupid. Early X-Men was a little bad with with the design for Iceman. Why he thick? (laughs) Also, also, what the fuck sort of cutthroat kitchen Alton Brown fucking himself on the blob? Fourth person perspective (laughs) upside down backwards bullshit. Is Beast doing? (laughs) Real quick, Jonah, Iceman is thick because he was basically a snowman, not an Iceman. Yeah, but like, why does he look like he's the most built out of all of them? Look at those pecs. No, it's puppy. No, no, Blob's got the pecs, you guys. That is that is some beefy Blob. That is like that Fred J. Dukes, man. Fit Blob I've ever seen. Like it's that Blob and Kingpin should just like fucking wrestle. (laughs) And there's Scott, just sort of covering his crotch with Gene. Some things never change. It doesn't even look like Angel's participating. It looks like he's just happened to be flying by. Like, sorry, guys. But Angel always looks like that. Like, I don't know. I'm very ambivalent about Angel. (laughs) What else is he going to do? All he can do is fly (laughs) and use his money. Since when? So that means you have to stick him like a pig. And he's got that magic sword. Maybe because his DNA can heal people, that's why he's such a man whore. I'm just saying. He spreads love by spreading love? Oh. Well, I need to I need to talk about love and mutant leaders for a moment. Guys, that page of number one, I love that it looks a little bit like Captain America is desperately trying to get in front of Xavier for Magneto's attention. Excuse me, sir! But beyond that, like there's something about Xavier and Magneto's eyes where this is very they met across the bar. Xavier was into it, but Magneto had some weird shit. There's also something really like sinisterly eloquent or eloquently sinister about placing this page in all red 
and having the cap ice stuff in blue, the predominant focus on yellow and blue on the previous page, highlighting sort of like the primary elements of it that even sort of bleeds into what I'm going to call kind of like the last primary page, that gorgeous page framed by the double daredevils. This segment, this X-Men and Avengers, this 1964 is so substantial that it's almost hard to believe there was like anything else to tell these three books avengers daredevil x-men they got their footing in roughly the same period and i think it shows in the heavy focus on this era the late 60s at marvel is kind of like a greatest hits it's Funny because for so many years, that's how comics functioned. Regina, one of the things that I've really appreciated that you've brought in terms of perspective is you've never been shy about the fact that like a lot of people who comics weren't purposefully aimed at, you kind of had to learn a lot through osmosis and you've gone back and developed your own vernacular and your own libraries. But, you know, we sort of get that like the FF's wedding, the Inhumans, the Black Panther, the Marvel Cosmos, Marvel, the Cree, the Negative Zone, like... This, it's almost like a box set of highlight Marvel stories. Did you feel like this era has been represented outside of perhaps, you know, Black Panther's huge flourishing the last couple of years? Like, I know I even feel like this is a huge section I don't know enough about. I have learned way more just from these couple of books, just, you know, three, four books. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's so much here. I had no idea even happened or was part of this person's story that really helped clarify even the movies, even though they're not a direct interpretation of the comic. I feel like even if you're just a casual movie fan, if you pick up these books, this is going to help you get a greater understanding of the characters that you're watching on the screen. I really like that about the way that this has been laid out and it's simple enough to follow. You know, with comics, you've got so many different things going on. You've got time travel and body swapping and you know wife swapping <laughs> you got all this stuff going on <laughs> but this kind of just breaks it down into succinct boxes that just gives you this snapshot of you need to know this and everything else will just fall into play i really like that you know jonah you came to the marvel universe a little bit later than i did so like even i'm saying you know like I, I knew some of this stuff contextualizing the eras that we've already read through you know whether it was through marvel team up or x-men appearances elsewhere we're moving to an era that like you know we started with the defenders this is kind of like giving you a crash course in the marvel history before we started do you feel like you would have benefited from this project at the start of x's for podcast would you recommend maybe we plug this in like a uh, start off here or do you feel like you have a stronger appreciation for getting here organically. I have a stronger appreciation of getting here organically. A lot of this I am learning, and I'm really excited to learn about the history and the past of Marvel and how we got to the current Earth 616. But something that I, I probably even wouldn't recommend newcomers to this, especially if you want to start so early, because it gleams, it skims a lot, but there's also major plot events and hooks included here that I think are spoilery for people. And I feel like part of going to the past, if you've never read it and you don't know anything, is having that magic of experiencing it for the first time like you were, you know, buying it the week it came out. You know, Dylan, something that I've really loved getting to share with you is kind of our love of, and like, please understand I say this with affection because we share this love, but we clearly love shitty vanity projects. We love it. 
when a creator gets to tell some masturbatory over-the-top story with their favorite artist of all time for no reason. And I think so frequently that loses itself in the narration, but there's something magical about these almost like uh, Francesco Francavilla kind of stylized pages. There's something about the dry power of that Italian-European postmodern comic coming through. How do you feel that these bookend sequences play into the story? Did you need the Franklin and Galan stuff, or is it just like a waste of time for you? I think it helps the reader um, know that this is a story, and even though it's a story of stories, I, I like it because... It's also letting you know, hey, you might be thinking some of the same things that Franklin says to Galactus or the, some of the same things that Galactus says to Franklin if you are already a reader. So I I enjoy it much. Just It's kind of like information pages too that we've been dealing with in Dawn of X with Hickman. So I think it's very much needed as kind of like a, hey, we've just talked about an entire decade and a half of history. Let's pause for a second and then we'll start again. And it's that reset that kind of made I guess something I had never realized much clearer to me. Kyle, when we started with the champions and, you know, we moved on to that team up with Beast and we talked about the Avengers, you know, we commented that it was such a dramatic change for Hank that it was it was almost like it was a new character they were applying it to. And I guess it wasn't until these pages that I realized, yeah, you know what? That's what the 70s were about. Taking a character that didn't used to transform and transforming them. We see that Captain Marvel now shares a body with a teenager. We see Beast transform. We see the Ghost Rider, who now transforms into a flaming skull. We see, on the page after that, the transformation into Morbius. And I kind of feel like that takes me back to our conversation about Beast. And I guess, yeah, he really was just, like, imprinting the 70s onto a character. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a time of transformation for a lot of things. I mean, the 70s, we also saw the transformation of, of like, the X-Men, you know? Uh, from the, the original five to the new X-Men. There's just so much change that came around as a result of this decade that has ultimately shaped Marvel as a whole. And, you know, you're really right, because that's around the same time that Iron Fist started teaming up with Power Man. That's around the same time the Defenders formed in the format we know them. Even retcons have gone back and inserted things into that era. Dylan, Regina, I know you guys are a little bit more like Avengers aware and fucking the Illuminati just like hanging out on Frank Castle's giant <laughs> bicep. Hey Frankie, you'd make a great pain sub. I love you. I mean, his family! Yeah, they're dead! <laughs> oh! This is one of those pages that I really love. The art kind of just like page with Spider-Man and his legs spread. But with one of the legs, there was a lot of storytelling in that boot of his. And I really love the transformation of Beast within Beast. It's just, I love that this book is just like a story of a story of a story of a story. And it's just beautiful. Yeah, there's a lot of great use of the negative spaces to tell additional story like that. Oh, totally. Like, 
oh my god, a million percent. That next few pages in particular, there is so much darkness that tells us the story and transitions us, especially the page with Dormammu and Loki and the Secret Empire. The blackness on that page is so telling. And, you know, even the, there's sort of like something entertaining about the gritty part of the 70s. It's kind of like in this green hue. The lovey part of the 70s gets kind of like pink and the Savage Land has this very flesh color because it's all really naked. But then the pastels of the Gwen Stacy sequence give way to these heavy dark tones of the post-Gwen Stacy universe. And that's what culminates in that painful darkness on that next page all of a sudden we're dominated by these greens and this green transitions us into the formation of alpha flight hey what's up 80s mutant mania and from that we get my precious logan and that panel of logan going at wendigo and hulk but going into the giant size x-men is like one of my favorite panels in history oh geez i didn't even notice that it's amazing oh wow yeah and there's an effortlessness to the color transition across the page if you follow the shades of green taking a look at shaman and the leg that's sticking out from the page moving into the hulk and sort of the way logan's gloves transition from that tealer shade to the bluer shade there is kind of a color work taking us out of this faded fake version of what we know sort of the alpha flight that was engineered into the past the hulk and wendigo fight that's not really wolverine but it's not and then we get the giant size x-men into what is obviously the greatest page of all time (laughs) um no uh, yeah, no, it's fucking amazing. And then that bottom panel, like, I need a hardcover of this unlettered. Like, I desperately need all of the art from this book. I also maybe didn't realize how many X-Men don't have <laughs> eyes until this page. I'm like, Storm, no eyes. Kurt, no eyes. Cyclops, no eyes. Logan, no eyes. Kurt, no eyes. Banshee, you're fucking weird for having eyes, bro. You might have to quit the X-Men. I also like the implication that there might be two genes coming out of the water at once. I'm just going to pretend I get two of them now. Well, I mean, they're... I mean, the other tech- X-Men are there, too. So <laughs> we get two of them. Well, I mean, it does specify duplicate. So that's just echoing the word duplicate. And there's something so gorgeous about the mirror of this page to the Dark Phoenix page that pretty much kicks off number four. It's There's such an effortlessness to the way the Dark Phoenix saga is broken down into one page. And don't get me wrong. It's sort of one of those things where you're cheating, right? Like, if you were asked, to break down the plot of Romeo and Juliet, you'd be like two families, kids fall in love and then get real fucked up because they can't be together at the end. But if I was like, okay, do the same thing for Anna Karenina, you would sort of be like, fuck, I don't know that one as good. And so I feel like I really get Wade being like, and this is the Dark Phoenix saga, thank you. And putting his feet up and not needing to hit the two drink minimum. But like, it really, really, really captures what I need it to capture to say to me, We are now in 1980. This is the Dark Phoenix saga and nothing will ever be the same. The only thing I find myself strangely missing is Kitty. Oh, yeah. Where is she? It's it's okay. Yeah, it's okay to miss her a little bit. Guys, what do you think about this like amazing transition from the Kung Fu days of the mid-70s to the X-Men domination of 1980? 
This movement into Dark Phoenix is even kind of compounded. We learn on the page before that, that, you know, and I even really agreed when Franklin was like, uh, hey, here's something I need to know. You're Galactus and you're like, LOL, Howard the Duck. What the fuck is wrong with you? And he's like, oh, you ate all the Watchers, that's how you know this. And I'm like, well, the next page is about Dark Phoenix, who ate a planet, consuming its essence. There's a beautiful symmetry to remind us of the extraordinary severity of the situation. Franklin, for all intents and purposes, is standing in for the Watchers. And Galactus is kind of sort of the Dark Phoenix, kind of maybe a little bit. What did you guys think of this sequence? I thought it was a stroke of genius, the way that it was put together. And then the follow-up, it just... it. Goes goes together so well and it tells you everything that you need to know about how we're all still learning about the story as it unfolds and it gives you a reason to accept it i love that a reason to accept it like it ties us back into the narrative i love that perspective I like that, again, how I mentioned before that I love these pages of Franklin and Galactus. I like that it's them talking to each other and then Franklin being like, well, wait, and questioning this the story and like the powerfulness of the person telling him this story compared to the story that Galactus is telling him of other people. It's just, to me, I like that we get to have Franklin question this history. Jonah, this is a very different Franklin for you. Where you are in continuity, Franklin's a wee little baby. And here, he's kind of at the end of time, like, you know, watching everything die, which I don't know. I kind of feel like that's the most opposite of a baby you can be. Or right? is it the most baby? How do you feel baby? watching the. I think that's a question for the ages. We're going to have to ask Franklin and Galactus that. But until we're able to, what do you think about the portrayal of the significance of the Phoenix in the grand scheme of the Marvel Universe? It is pretty amazing how this book, number three, ends on the Phoenix Force, and not to delve too far ahead, but in number four of this series, I feel like it's everything that has to do with the Phoenix, and the Dark Phoenix Rising, and everything that like came about it, because it is still, to this day, one of the most prominent Marvel stories told, referenced, spoken about, because it was such a, for its time, groundbreaking story that friend of the pod, Chris Claremont, kind of got away with doing until they, Marvel was like, no, Jean has to die. She can't come back. And, you know, one of the most amazing things is, even though they were like, no, she doesn't belong in the Dark Phoenix saga, Kyle, they managed to find room for Dazzler on the next page. But, okay, guys, take a look at that next page again. Only one person has eyes again. And now I'm thinking there's a limit on the number of eyes per page. Maybe they had a budget on eyes. They had an eyeball yeah. budget. So. Kyle, how do you feel about Dazzler getting page space well before Kitty? I mean, Dazzler pretty much showed up a month after Kitty in the original story, so I I'm not too surprised, but I, I am disappointed that such a prominent member of the X-Men wasn't introduced at all in this period of this book. And you know, even my precious Brian makes it, so I find myself a little frustrated. However, I think there are more named badass superhero female on this page than in one of the whole issues so far. Regina, it had to be a breath of fresh air that in a quick succession, we get Dazzler, Captain Marvel, Spider-Woman, She-Hulk. It is a who's who cavalcade of female heroes ultimately culminating in your lady danny moonstar in the new mutant finally we have females everywhere 
that was very nice. And then even on the next page, there's, you know, um, Elektra and Spectrum. And again, outside of the X-Men, I didn't know a lot about the Marvel Universe for quite a while. I didn't know who Spectrum was. I didn't even know that she'd been the first female Miss Marvel until more recently. So having them featured in this order, I really like that. Dylan, I don't know about you, but I'll be totally honest. One of my big kind of like gaping knowledge base holes is the Korvac saga. And we've seen multiple references to it. It getting such a huge spotlight here. I have a feeling that the Korvac saga is going to be coming back up just as readily as these Celestials did. Are you familiar with the Korvac saga? And if not, let's just talk about how great Moondragon is. Then we are going to be talking about how hot that bald woman is, because I don't really know anything about Korvac either. <laughs> Yay, double screwed! <laughs> This is how the Avengers are always dying. And speaking of the Avengers dying, you guys, the original Captain Marvel made out with a skeleton and got a disease and died. (laughs) Wait, that's not what that says happened? Is that not what happened? No, no, no. He's he's doing a rendition of Hamlet. Where Hamlet and his ghost dad go off to the sunset and get married and leave his uncle and his mom to be. (laughs) But anyway, the new mutants are on that page. With creepy Xavier. <laughs> Xavier, who now has his lover Magneto, his eyes. But hey, uh, Xavier, Danny, and Rain have eyes. But Whoa. Birdo doesn't. Cannonball is flying with his eyes shut, and Karma's just being Karma. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty shut there. Like, Karma, <laughs> Karma's eyes no, are I, actually open. Honest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's just a bit further back, recessed into oh, the panel. Oh, zoomed in. I'm I'm going to be really honest. The first depiction where I'm like, no, like I normally don't drop into like the no register. I do not like this wolf thing. <laughs> I think she looks I was like about a to say that. She looks like a Grinch. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I will say I know what the artist, what, what he was trying to go for with this look, but this isn't the look that Rain had when she first Started, which is what this image is supposed to be. This is more kind of a weird take on Sienkiewicz, but yeah, yeah, this was like a cute version of Sienkiewicz, and cute Sienkiewicz doesn't really go together. So no, this should have just been a little red dog there next to Birdo. You know, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about kind of like pointing out the kind of like disjointed narrative of the art not quite matching exactly. Like, Everybody by now knows what a freaky big daredevil Electra person I am. I love my Electra. That is not the look she had at that point. So every time I look at her, I'm like, who's that lady sharing a face with Monica? Oh. To be to be honest, when oh, I saw that page, okay. I thought it was Psylocke for a minute and I was very confused. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like the way that this image was made to like represent like four different characters, but it's kind of I love that creepy yeah. as fuck. Also, yeah, but super yeah, creepy. I, I I liked how well and the idea of it, but it's creepy. And the the baby bangs was more <laughs> and I don't know if nineties than Electra at that age. <laughs> Yeah. And I kind of think there's even some really great female representation that's lost because of the art. I don't know if everybody can tell, but that arm holding that sword, that's Lady Sif. Oh, I did not realize that. That's her sword and that's her costume. I did like that they mentioned or or that that is her, even though we don't know it. Like you said, it's a lost representation on her. I 
kind of hate that they decided to throw uh, James Rhodes in the middle of this. Like, why not just make it all four women? But that's just my little griff with it. The team has been working on an incredibly deep, incredibly thorough deep dive into the Secret Wars from 1984s, and I could not be more excited to give you guys a little sneak preview of that with this next page, whether it's how horny all of us are for Crusher Creel or how, guys, Enchantress really is just up there like, look at my crotch. No, like, for real. She really is just like, sexy fa- sexy fashion. Sexy fashion. Nico, I'm surprised you completely just glossed over the love of your life, Beta Ray Bill. No, I didn't. I didn't. I, I, everybody's favorite android that is not a horse is going to have to stand by the wayside. So... We can talk about that gorgeous depiction of Spider-Man and the Venom symbiote. Oh my god, that is that is some next level storytelling. Yeah, it's a uh, pretty amazing. It's pretty awesome. One, I love that Charles is breakdancing, and <laughs> and two, for some reason, Volcana is the only one who is not there. No one liked her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I also just noticed that Galactus is like trying not to break Shh, up baby, with the building. It's okay. <laughs> no. Come back. I didn't mean it. Why? And Doc Ock just looks like a really intense stilt man here with that funny falling backwards. Shout out to that one wrecking crew member all the way in the back not doing anything. <laughs> Why is purple and green like the go-to color for villains in Secret Wars? Uh, Because it was in the 60s. They went by what certain colors did. So that's why Hulk is green and purple because he's the good guy that's capable of rage. They only had so many colors to choose from. And in order to get a dynamic color representation... Pairs were created to be used regularly. It's actually the same reason that Beast and Hulk both started as gray and then had to go to a different pigment of ink so that they'd stand out better on the page. Still, I mean, like all of the villains are either green or purple or green and purple or green and some other color or purple and some other color. Speaking of heroes coming in fabulous colors, the next page has sort of like all the color play you can handle. Number one, it has Cloak and Dagger, who are the representation of lightness and dark in the Marvel Universe. And, you know, they they could be the like punchline of a lot of jokes, but I think Wade did a really nice job representing them in a lovely way. Power Pack, who are the gayest little kids ever. And then there is nothing more LA than Mockingbird, Wonder Man, and Tigra in a bikini walking under Hawkeye on a hovercraft. I was not expecting to see Power Pack. Here. But I, I'm really happy that they did make an appearance. Uh, quick sidebar. I don't remember which episode it is, but it's the episode where we met Cloak and Dagger in a Marvel team-up, and Nico and Dylan lost it that I called Cloak and Dagger edgy. <laughs> it's a couple of kids on drugs, okay? Everybody calm down. No, <laughs> okay. So... One of the things that I love is that you can't talk about the 80s at Marvel for very long without basket weaving your way into a whole bunch of guys no i'm serious when you get to the next page there's only like three sets of eyes but there's something amazing about this x-factor mutant massacre directly into 
archangel sequence. It's sort of like a beautiful perversion of the idea that made the X-Men. You can actually see angels fall from grace. He's heading upward in the same trajectory as the X-Men, uh, X-Factor. Then he's dead on the ground with the, the heroes that sort of replaced him as the greater focus sort of eclipsing the original X-Men. And then you have him heading downward into the darkness. It's sort of a really, it's a really interestingly powerful statement on where the books were heading. I loved the center panel, just the way it was set up. It's just, oh, it's just so beautiful. I'm gonna leave it at that because I'm speechless. Yeah, having the current team of X-Men just being displayed as the Marauder's shadows was a very moody way of depicting. And you know what? Even from this weird above fisheye kind of angle, Scalp Hunter could get it. Okay, sweet. So that's Scalp Hunter. Is that Sabretooth or Wild Child? And is the the lady in the green, is that Vertigo? Yeah. That's about as, if anybody is surprised that I know who Vertigo is, I just remember her from that one, uh, whatever issue we read, was it Marvel Team-Up or something where Angel and Spider-Man went to the Savage Land and they turned into those really Marvel fanfare where they were gross insect and bird thing and Peter was the only one who had a moral conundrum while Angel was fine being a savage beast. And Vertigo was there. She's like, ah! And she, like, didn't do that much. And Nico was like, yeah, we'll see her again. And I was like, oh. Well, speaking of people we're seeing again, because of the Walt Simonson, Wheezy Simonson, you know, marriage thing, we get to see a little bit more Thor on this page, which kind of reminds us of the bigger Marvel Universe. And I'll be honest, does anybody here know a whole lot about Armor War or the Masters of Evil? No, not really. No. Guys, check out the amount of X-Men on the next page. We have Excalibur, we have Inferno, and goddamned if Inferno does not have the biggest Maddie titties ever. And then you've got like, you've got like Warrior of Light Ileana framed against a giant rock, which, hey, I'm still cool with it. I'm, st- I'm still pretty good with it. But all of a sudden we get like heavy into the 90s and I'm like, I did not sign up to move this quickly into the 90s. I However. Did. Captain Britain and Madeline would now, in my opinion, make a great couple. Look at them. Okay, so Regina, please talk as much as you need to about your beautiful queen, and then <laughs> and then w- and then we uh, talk about Dylan, the Infinity Gems. What... Oh my God! No, we're gonna just let... <laughs> I... <laughs> we're gonna let Dylan do whatever it is he needs to I do. Can't. First of all, I am just I love her freaking hair. It's like this bouffant type hairstyle. Um, but what the hell was up with covering up the underboob? I need some underboob in my life here. There is a fascinating amount of underboob that is underrepresented, <laughs> boobably speaking. But for what it's worth, I don't think it detracted at all from what we're seeing. She looks great. I think she's very well represented. She's standing in a very sultry manner, but it's not taking anything away from her power as a woman or as a villain. And you've got Sinister standing in, he's so tiny in front of her. And I feel like that's her way of saying, look, you little piece of crap. (laughs) You're there, but I'm still bigger than you. If I could just, before Dylan explodes, I love Cable. So when I switched the page, I was like, oh, Daddy Cable! (laughs) And it's everything about, like, the reflection on his muscle arm, like, of the light. I, too, was like, oh, Daddy Cable, just please be my sweet, sweet bottom daddy. I will take such good care of you. I love you. Sweet, sweet bottom daddy. All right, Dylan. Here you go. Finally, you can talk about Deadpool. (laughs) Finally, a page that I love. 
we get to see Warpath in his all big, muscly, Native American, hot, hotter than Cable in this image, goodness. We get to see Warpath. I'm just happy. Like, there's some characters, like we already mentioned, Kitty, who is way more important than Warpath, who should have been shown. And the only time she's been shown, shown so far was in that Marauder's shadow bit. So... Yeah, literally, the only thing we've seen so far is a shadow of Kitty so, <laughs> No, we, we saw her in the Excalibur. Uh, oh, wait. She was in that Excalibur one. Never mind. You're right. You're right. She was. She was covering Brian's giant yep. cross. Anyway, one of Warpath's thighs has made a bigger splash in these books than Kitty has so far. So anyway, Warpath is here and Feral. And I actually, as much as I love Warpath, I love Domino in this picture because she looks like she's just absolutely insane and just shooting I think she looks like she's being fired out of a cannon. (laughs) Yeah. She looks like she's being launched out of Cable's back. I love it. She has so much joy. I was just like, man, if you put two BFGs in my hands and I was just spray and I'd be happy too. <laughs> so Jonah, by now you're culturally familiar with this guy Deadpool, but I don't know if you're as familiar with the fact that Deadpool had an equal kind of like character he was meant to be foils with. Deadpool was never meant to be Cable's foil. Cable's foil comes in a few pages after this, but Deadpool originally had a nemesis named Weapon X, whose name was ultimately Garrison Kane. Did uh did he enter the culture of vernacular for you? Did you is he as readily recognizable as Deadpool for you? That sounds like a pop group name. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> Nobody knows who Kane. Nobody knows who Kane is. It's fine. Well, Danny Kane. You know, now here's the thing. I know who. I know who they are. Danny Kane. He's damaged. <laughs> so Kyle, you stopped reading just at the beginning of uh, before, and just before. So, what did you think of this image of Cannonball? He looks so goofy, but so happy at the same time to be blasting. He looks like a really excited jack o' lantern does. to me. So why does Shatterstar, Cannonball, Domino, and maybe a little bit of Tabitha? Tabitha looks a little... Tabitha had a, a couple of rough nights right now. That's a little... Um, <laughs> she looks a little drunk. Why do they look so, like, so happy? And then you just have, like, Cable, uh, Warpath. Is that Feral or is that, um... That's Feral. Feral. That's like, feral. why do they look so, like... That's Feral. Ready to fight, but everybody else is like, Woo! <laughs> It's just who had access to what drugs when. Guys, it has been so fantastic talking about this masterpiece with you. And there's just so much. It's actually hard to find time in one hour to talk about two issues. That's crazy because there's episodes where we definitely do like six issues in 20 minutes. So I am so excited to come back and finish out issue four before taking a look at the rest of the series. It is such a dream come true to talk about one of my favorite projects with my favorite people. And it's just been great. Kyle, until we come back, where can the folks at home find you? You can find my home on the internet on both Instagram and Twitter at Drantis82. How about you, Dylan? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men group that is called House of X that Regina helps me moderate, or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan, that is Warpath, named after the best mutant ever, underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Regina, where can everyone find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the Red Queen of X, and you can find me on Facebook at the House of Goblin Queen. Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me fighting my inner demons as well as actual demons, just like Ileana, over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? 
like a well-placed character blocking a crotch. You guys can find me all over this amazing network, Mondays and Thursdays on this show, Mondays being Modern Mondays. We are Krakoa Thursdays, Throwback Thursdays, 80s Mutant Mania. Don't forget to check out HTML, where we're currently firmly ensconced in the Star Wars universe, taking a look at the Clone Wars. You can also check out our fascinating takes on the X-Men over at WeAreKrakoa.com, and you can find pictures of me at NicoAction on Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And guys, ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, until we come back to finish out our examination of the history of the Marvel Universe. Keep those Krakoa portals open. Later. Bye. Bye. Bye.